0: How it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today's episode 380. It's titled How Stories Drive Our Happiness and Financial Success. Last week, Lapron and I watched the 2011 documentary, Finding Joe. It was about the hero's journey, a theory that Joseph Campbell developed and discussed in depth in his 1949 book, Hero of a Thousand Faces. He developed this theory over five years, spending nine hours a day reading mythology from around the world. He concluded that epic poems, novels, movies, myths all tell the same story, what he describes as a monomyth with stages of initiation, separation, and return. There are 17 stages in his monomyth, but the final stage... When there is a return, the hero brings back a story to share and inspire others. We are rooted in stories. It's how we view the world. It's how we make financial decisions based on the narrative that is in our head, that drives our actions. I've mentioned in the past that I skim numerous digital newspapers and magazines a day. I subscribe to a number of institutional research services that produce a constant stream of written reports. I subscribe to Refinitiv and YCharts that stream news headlines from Reuters, Associated Press, and other services. I scan my Twitter feed briefly. I don't watch any news on television or listen to it on the radio or podcast, but I spend about an hour a day on news consumption, usually in the evenings trying to batch it all at once. When I finish my news consumption session, I often ask, did I learn anything? Did anything change? Did something jump out that I didn't expect? Was there something that contradicted my worldview, that interrupted the narrative that I've constructed as to what is happening in the world and what is the narrative that others are following? We navigate the world through narratives, through stories. David Tuckett, who is trained in economics, medical sociology, and psychoanalysis, wrote, When investors buy, sell, or hold all classes of financial assets, what they are doing is constructing narratives about their future relationships with an imagined idea. It is the narrative about a given option that makes that option compelling. Narratives is what gives us confidence to act in the face of radical uncertainty and potential losses. In fact, the higher the stakes, the more we rely on stories rather than statistics, on anecdotal evidence. Tracy Freeling and her co-authors discovered this as they surveyed over 60 research studies in various domains and found From those studies, when emotional engagement is high, when there's a severe threat like a health issue, a pandemic, that statistical evidence is less influential than anecdotal evidence in terms of making a decision. Stories and narratives are more influential when the stakes are high. But they found that in situations where emotional engagement is relatively low, so there's a low threat, individuals were more likely to rely on statistical evidence. What we do is mental time travel. We simulate in our minds some imagined future, how things will work out, how we'll feel when they work out. Much of this is done subconsciously, but it's those powerful feelings that give us confidence to act. Last week, I released a remastered version of episode 145, People Like Us Invest Like This. And I mentioned something that physicist Richard Feynman was fond of saying. He would tell people, you won't believe what happened to me today. And then he would say, absolutely nothing. The story doesn't change much from day to day. But some days they do. And those changes can be dramatic. Tomorrow will more than likely be like today. But someday there will be a surprise. And they are surprises because they're not expected. Now, how we view stories, narratives, surprises, stability, change, often is a function of our professional domain, our background. David Tuckett pointed this out in comparing economists to social and psychological scientists. Traditional macroeconomics, considers that economies are stable systems. And from time to time, they have shocks, an oil shock, an energy shock, that they have to adjust to. But because the system is mostly stable, economists can use models, simplify models that explain the world, that can be used to make predictions about the future. In contrast, social science is always calling into question the order and stability of the world. They believe that stability is is not typical and that over time systems become less orderly. Which is it? Is the world stable and predictable, occasionally hit by shocks that can be absorbed and overcome, or is the world inherently unstable, unpredictable? Perhaps it's orderly only for a time and then it's shifted in a different direction. The paper that this comes from that David Tuckett and his co-author's research was geared towards central bankers, looking at how central bankers should conceive information and use narratives in their decision making, in setting policy rates, to combat inflation, to encourage full employment. And they question whether the economic models that policymakers use, are they faithful simplifications of the world that have predictive powers? Or are they more fluid? They're used to develop what they call imaginaries, different elements of the future and how the future could evolve. Less predictive, more helpful for modeling potential outcomes as opposed to predicting a specific outcome. I tend to lean toward the world is not stable, that it's not predictable, that it's constantly changing. But the degree of change depends on the scale and time frame that we're operating with. And I discussed this back in episode 376, where I introduced the concept of panarchies. Systems have different layers and different scales. At the security level, and considering investing, stocks, bonds, there's much more activity. And companies are are more likely to get hit by something unexpected, a surprise. So you get more volatility with individual stocks than you do at the asset class level, where things change more slowly. But they do change. Whether our view is that the world is stable or more disorderly, we still use stories and narratives to navigate the world. When I'm going through my daily news scan, I don't remember most of what I read. It's just physically impossible to remember all of it. And because I operate on an asset class scale, I don't spend much time looking for profit warnings for specific companies or new product announcement. My frame, my filter is what signal is in all that noise that should lead me to change my narrative of what is happening in the world, in the economy, in financial markets. There's something Particularly unusual, I'll email that story to myself. I get a special email for that, and I might save it and refer back to it later. But most of my news intake is viewed with a financial lens. What is the economic and financial market impact? Is there a regime change that suggests I should take some action? So I'm reading with the view, is the narrative changing? And has it changed enough that I should take some action? that I am confident taking some action based on the changing narrative. Now, the narrative may be right or wrong, but we can't act without a story going through our head, our belief. Otherwise, we would be completely overwhelmed. We need stories to grasp onto. But it's important that we're always looking for information to disconfirm that story, to say that it's not correct, that it should be changed. We get into difficulties when we're unwilling to change our story, our view, irrespective of the evidence. We have to be willing to change. Now, stories also drive what it is we buy. One of the stories, the news articles I read recently was how Walgreens, this is a U.S. retailer, pharmacy, has begun to swap out clear refrigerator doors in their stores where you can see the product and replacing them with screens, iPad-like screens. And those screens show what's inside. You can no longer see through the door. It's a screen developed by a startup called Cooler Screens. They have over 10,000 screens being tested all around the world in Kroger and CVS. The founder, Arson Avakian, said, I hope we will one day be able to expand across all parts of the store. The CNN article suggested consumers weren't really excited about this. They wanted to be able to see what was in the refrigerator to grab the product, as opposed to potentially seeing an advertisement. The CNN piece said this company was solving a problem that consumers didn't know existed but they were actually solving a problem that's very old. Consumers are always trying to figure out what to buy. There are so many choices. Which item best fits the story the consumer is telling about themselves? Meanwhile, retailers and producers are trying to make consumers aware of the product to help influence their story to select their product. That can be challenging. The average grocery store in the U.S. has over 30,000 items fighting for the attention of consumers. Some of those items get placed in promotional displays at the end of the aisle. I saw one academic study that found that within the beer category, if beer is placed at the end of the aisle, a certain brand versus those that are within the aisle, that promoted brand just at the end of the aisle saw its sales increased by 27% because consumers saw it. I buy things at the end caps and we are all influenced by stories. Recently, I saw a post on Instagram and the guy was wearing a hat. I thought that is a cool looking hat. I spend a lot of time in the sun, hiking, fishing. And my favorite hat that I bought five years ago in Bacal, Campeche, Mexico is starting to fall apart. It's weaved from palm fronds, very tight weave, made in Bacal by artisans that weave these hats in caves, in natural caves. When the and I were in Campeche seven years ago, we went into Bacal and were led to one of the, the shops, to a store. And I chose a number four hat. The highest quality was a number five. Next time, I'll choose a number five. Maybe it will last longer, but it has lasted five years. But there was a story to it. That's where I bought my hat. I interacted with the person that made the hat. So then I see this hat on Instagram. It's made by Karen and Makato Horasaki. They're based in Sweden. They hand make these hats. That's a much better story than just going to some random store and buying a no-name hat. that I don't know who made it. I wanted to be a part of that story, so I bought one of the hats. I bought it used off-grailed because I, I wanted to make sure I actually liked it. But knowing where something's made, knowing who made it, whether it's authentic or not, is so important in helping us to decide what to buy. Seth Godin, in a recent Akimbo podcast, discussed this, that the key to successful marketing is to be different, to be differentiated. To have a niche so that your customers see that you are different, that you have a remarkable story, and then they'll be willing to share it. If we're trying to be everything for everyone, then there's no reason to share the story and we kill our marketing by not being differentiated, by having an interesting story. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts, high-yield cash accounts where your money can earn 11 times the national average, and automated investing technology like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. These stories impact financial outcomes. Robert Shiller, in his 2019 book, Narrative Economics, wrote, A key proposition of this book is that economic fluctuations are substantially driven by contagion of oversimplified and easily transmittable variants of economic narratives. These ideas color people's loose thinking and actions. It's the stories that drive action and influence economies. David Tuckett and his co-authors have developed what's known as the conviction narrative theory, and that stories will lead us to avoid certain things or to approach certain things. What they did is they went back to the Wall Street Journal archives, 2.4 million articles from 1889 to 1934, and then they constructed a sentiment index, Sentiment or emotion, and what they were looking for were words that suggested emotion. They looked for words that were analogous to excitement, where the article had some element of approaching or taking an action. And they also looked at words that were more related to anxiety or avoidance. And they did this through the text. They had 150 words, and then they created this sentiment index where they could see whether the excitement or the approaching of a particular action, buying stocks, for example, was increasing or whether anxiety and avoidance was increasing. And you can look at this sentiment index that goes from 1920 to the early 1930s and it's it's volatile. But what they found when they compared this sentiment index to real world economic events, the money supply, the S&P 500 stock market returns, industrial production, prices, interest rate, credit spreads, that the sentiment actually influenced the outcomes, that it wasn't just economic events influencing sentiment, that it was sentiment, the stories, the narratives, the fear, the greed that had an impact on economic events. And that's what Robert Shiller proposed in his book. And provided statistical evidence. We can look at what's going on today. How is it the stock market is rebounding, even though oil prices are over $100 a barrel and Putin has invaded Ukraine? Interest rates are rising because central banks are raising policy rates. There's a potential COVID wave. There are all of these items that could potentially lead us to avoid stocks, to sell stocks. Yet, They're rebounding. Perhaps it's because investors' stories or narratives became too pessimistic, that that pessimism was already reflected in prices and prices overreacted. So then when we get some positive news, such as some of the survey data suggests the economy isn't doing as bad as people thought, where there's a potential peace outcome for Ukraine and Russia, then you get a rebound. But it's the sentiment, it's, it's the stories that can drive market returns and the fundamental data. That's one reason we monitor sentiment, what we call market internals, on money for the rest of us plus, because they can influence financial outcomes. We can also be manipulated by stories. There is a paper written by Eleanor Matteau and her co-authors where she looked at precision of numbers and If a story is very precise and includes numbers, that can have a powerful impact. They have found that in pricing decisions, by specifying specific prices, individuals are willing to pay more and are less likely to negotiate. People prefer more detail in their stories because it gives them greater confidence. We prefer explanations that are simple and specific to give us more confidence. They found in the investment arena that investors responded favorably to companies that communicated forecasts, predictions with high precision. Those that had higher precisions, that were more specific about what was going to happen, that investors liked that more, had more confidence in them, even if the firm had below average performance. As a result, firms tend to communicate with very high precision in order to restore investor confidence. And the reality is people who are very confident tend to communicate with very high precision, which tends to dissuade experts. Experts know that it is very, very difficult to have high confidence in very specific predictions. So when they see very specific predictions, they're skeptical. We should be also We shouldn't fall into the trap that precision means a prediction is more likely to be true. But in this study that Bateau and her co-authors put together, they showed potential investment returns and found that with more naive investors, that when the projected investment returns were more precise, that investors were willing to invest more and believed them more because They were precise as opposed to a range of returns. Now, that makes it challenging if you're an investment advisor because investors crave specificity, preciseness. But as experts, we know we can't be that precise because the world's too complex. The narrative changes too quickly. There are too many variables. There's always a balance. I struggled as an institutional investment advisor conveying too much confidence, too much precision Knowing I didn't know for sure, but my clients wanted that precision because then they felt more confident in the services that we provided. Finally, when we think about stories, narratives, it is so ingrained in our body from an evolutionary standpoint. Our bodies, our minds, our emotions always want more. And the way that the body does this is through what's known as homeostasis. Whenever something happens to us, some type of shock, a physical shock, emotional shock, we recalibrate and try to get back to a steady state level, more stability. Our body wants stability, which means that when something good happens to us, we get money, we get power. Just something good happens, we quickly get back to normal. We get an initial pop of satisfaction. Wow, that was so cool. But then it's in the past and we're back to kind of our steady state, which means we're never truly satisfied. 19th century philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer said, wealth is like seawater. The more we drink, the thirstier we become. And the same is true of fame. Arthur C. Brooks in The Atlantic writes, It makes no sense in modern life to use our energy to have five cars, five bathrooms, or even five pairs of sneakers. But we just want them. Neuroscientists have looked into this, Dopamine is excreted in response to thoughts about buying new things, winning money, acquiring more power or fame, having new sexual partners. The brain evolved to reward us for the behaviors that kept us alive and made us likely to pass on our DNA. We crave those things. Yet when we get them, it doesn't make us happier. And this is known as the hedonic treadmill. Psychologists Philip Brickman and Donald Campbell wrote in 1971 that the hedonic treadmill is to seek new levels of stimulation merely to maintain old levels of subjective pleasure, to never achieve any kind of permanent happiness or satisfaction. The reason why I flagged and saved this article by Arthur C. Brooks is because he included a secret, a formula to get off this hedonic treadmill. If we're never satisfied by getting more and more because our narrative-driven emotions continues to want more once that dopamine hit, the key is not to get more. The key to satisfaction is taking what we have and dividing it by what we want. And if we want less, then we'll be more satisfied with what we have. He writes, the secret to satisfaction is not to increase our halves. That will never work. Or at least it will never last. That is the treadmill formula, not the satisfaction formula. The secret is to manage our wants. By managing what we want instead of what we have, we give ourselves a chance to lead a more satisfied life. What he does is, on his birthday, he writes a bucket list of things that he would like, trips he would like to take, things he would like to get, awards he would like to win, fame. He makes a list. But he makes a second list of intrinsic things that are sources of happiness. Relationships, his faith, his family, friendships. Work he does that is inherently satisfying for its own sake, not for the recognition or getting recognized by others. He compares those two lists and recognizes that the extrinsic things compete with the intrinsic things that he wants, that he has to choose. He imagines himself sacrificing his relationships for the admiration of strangers. And when he compares the intrinsic things to the extrinsic things, the things he thinks he wants, it helps direct him in the right direction, which helps that formula work. It reduces the physical things that he wants, and ultimately he gets more satisfaction. Now, this is another form of mental time travel, something that we do in crafting our stories, the stories that we tell about our lives, the stories that we gravitate to, because it's the stories that give us confidence to act. So think about your stories, the stories you're telling yourself, the investment stories that you use to drive your financial decisions. Are they grounded in the facts, at least as we understand them? Or are we being manipulated by other investment stories because they're so precise and so confident? Investing is inherently uncertain. We never get the precision that we want. We do the best we can to cope with uncertainty, focusing on a longer time scale At a higher level, asset classes versus securities is what makes it easier for me. But think about your stories that you're telling yourselves. And if you don't like where it's leading you, then change your story and listen to stories of people you can trust. That then is episode 380. Thanks for listening. I'd like to help you become a better investor. Certainly the free podcast helps with that. But have you subscribed to my email newsletter, The Insider's Guide? It's where each week I share an essay on money, investing, and the economy to a list of thousands of email subscribers. I put a great deal of thought and time into that newsletter, and I would love for you to be able to read it and learn from it. You can sign up for the Insider's Guide newsletter at moneyfortherestofus.com. Another way I would love to help you become a better investor is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is the premier investment education platform that's been operating for over seven years, PLUS membership gives you the tools and resources you need to manage your investment portfolio. Not only do you get access to my more than two decades of investment experience, look at my portfolio trades, but Money for the Restless PLUS has partnered with top-tier institutional research firms such as Ned Davis Research, Capital Economics, MSEI, and Refinitiv DataStream. I curate the most important content and lessons to help you make better portfolio decisions. You also access a community of over a 1,000 members to get their insights. Money for the Rest of Us Plus is a bargain compared to a college credit or subscribing to an institutional research service that can cost upwards of $10,000 per year or even hiring a financial advisor. You can learn more about Plus membership at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.